Well, as I uh, am looking to try to turn the page from Proverbs into whatever's next, I'm not exactly sure yet. Um, I'm hoping to to start something new in January, so we'll kind of have a you know an interesting and different schedule, I'm sure, through the next several weeks. I, I'm going to be out of town um, part of that time. I can't remember which Sundays that might affect, and I'm sure you know it's going to be a little bit uh, different with even the, the meeting schedule. So um, I'm probably going to just uh, do some topical things uh, um, peppered throughout uh, the remainder of the calendar year. And then look to turn the page to something new in terms of a, a focused study in January. But as I was reflecting upon um, just all that we've walked through and looking at Proverbs, both looking at it from a um, sort of a verse by verse approach in the early part of our study and really focusing in on um, a father's teaching to his son, that parental instruction section in the first part, Solomon instructing his sons and and then looking at broad categories that's, that are repeated and dealt with in multiple places in Proverbs um, over the course of the last number of weeks. This is actually our 30th lesson, in case you're counting, keeping track. This is number 30. Um, I, I've, I've been reflecting upon what it is or what are things that contribute to um, someone maintaining a life in a walk of wisdom or maybe a, a converse way to look at it, or what are things, or what's, what, are, what's, what are ways that, that basically lead to um, a life that might have been on a path of wisdom and then veers off the course and ends up in places of folly and consequences of sin and, and sort of the devastating uh, result of walking in foolishness and not heeding the counsel of the Lord and the and the truth of His Word. It's interesting in thinking about that, even at this time of year. Um, I don't know what uh, holidays are like for you guys. I, I'm, you know, I think that all of us, uh, to one degree or another, when we think about gathering together with family, family in sort of the broadest sense of that term, um, I'm guessing that you are like me and that you have family relationships um, that are very rich, that are encouraging and edifying, that there's um, great accountability and, and godliness and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. And then you have family relationships that are more difficult and more challenging. Maybe they're more strained. They're more, there's been uh, life events that have taken place over time that have brought a unique challenge to this, that relationship dynamic. And yet, it's this time of year oftentimes that we're thrust into those social settings with various family members or friends or relations that are a little different than what we normally encounter throughout the course of our, our year and our day and our week um, that, that put in front of us those, those relationship strains, those challenges. And, and maybe it, it makes you... Um, feel the effects of your own sin and how you deal with those difficult relationships, or maybe it causes you to reflect back on certain um, encounters or certain challenges that you experienced with those people or those family members over time that sort of produced the current state of the relationship, and, and you sort of reflect on those events and and. I don't know if you're like me, but I think, you know, what if, what if this, what if that, I wonder why that, and I, I, I get somewhat reflective just by virtue of the fact that I'm finding myself in, in spending time with various family members that bring some of those things to mind and, and causes me to be reflective on, on life events and, and the consequence of decisions that we make and consequences for both good and for ill. And so... As I thought about that and, and was thinking about that just personally, and then thinking about it in light of this study of Proverbs, this call to wisdom that we've been walking through, I couldn't help but reflect back on Solomon himself. And we did a little bit of discussion about Solomon as one of the principal writers of most of the Proverbs. The, the majority of the Proverbs are attributed to Solomon, either, by, either directly or indirectly. As the, as the writer of, of Proverbs that were edited or collected by others. And so, um, and of course, he's renowned in Scripture as, uh, for his wisdom. 
I, I started reading back through the story of Solomon, the account of Solomon in his life, and, and began to make observations about Solomon and how what, what, what the Spirit of God chose to capture and record for us um, as an example for us, as, as the Old Testament is referred to in these, these stories and these accounts of various figures and key people and, um, and their journey in life. You, you obviously, you know that not every detail of Solomon's life is recorded for us, not every relationship, every interaction, every word, every conversation, every thought. And so what, what is it about the things that are reflected in the scriptures about Solomon why are they there, and what are some things that they can point us to as we think about this walking in the pathway of wisdom um, before the face of God? And, and so I just, I just went back through his story, basically, and made some observations that I just want to kind of put before us as a, as a way to transition into something new next time we uh, get together and start moving toward a new study. So this is just what I would call uh, Reflections on Wisdom. From, from the life of Solomon, and, um, and again, these are not uh, anything that, that you would not be able to ascertain yourself, or I don't count these as some kind of super genius insight from you know, days and days and days of studying the life of Solomon, for sure, but I just found myself looking at his life, and these things just sort of came to mind and, 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 and uh, seemed to be um, impactful when you think about what, what is it what was it about Solomon? What would it be about us that would guard us in this pathway of wisdom? And certainly the converse would be true. If the absence of these, these characteristics, these qualities, these areas of focus would certainly make us vulnerable to um, various pathways of folly. And I think it's important, and we think about Proverbs, we think about really the entirety of Scripture, but Proverbs in particular, and then of course other places in Scripture in particular, um, we have to realize that we live in a constant war, that we are, we are constantly being uh, assaulted, attacked, um, there is a, a war of ideas, there's a, there's a war against anything that would hold up the glory and perfection of Christ and the gospel. And, and in our minds, our, our cherishing of those truths and our, our reliance upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the power of God's Spirit in us and, and the ways that that shapes our thinking, those, those kinds of ideas are being assaulted all the time. Uh, we, we, are, we are constantly uh, having our thinking challenged both internally um, by virtue of the, the enemy and doctrines of demons that are constantly being pervaded in our society, um, by the world around us and the world system that we live in. We're, we're under assault all the time. And so we would be foolish in, in not to think that, uh, that that's not the case. And in fact, that often is one of the greatest uh, vulnerability points for us is when we fail to recognize or we find ourselves at ease, if you will, um, spiritually and, and in our thinking, and, and we, we don't recognize that you know, we're slipping into patterns of thought that if they continue could ultimately lead to patterns of decision-making that ultimately leads to sinful, wicked decisions that ultimately lead to devastating consequences in our life. And, and um, So that's just how I wanted to try to wrap this up for us and just make some observations from from Solomon, and again, I, I, we, I got a lot of um, biblical text here to, to try to walk through um, to kind of draw out these observations, but hopefully it'll be a, a helpful exercise for us to walk through a little bit of Solomon's life. So we'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we'll start there, and this is a very familiar section. We actually referenced this in part of our study as we were looking at Proverbs, I guess really introducing it, recognizing that uh, Solomon was uniquely gifted with wisdom, and so this this section here in First Kings chapter three, verses three to nine, gives us the account of that encounter with God, in which he he appeals to him for wisdom. And I want to use that section as as uh, to draw out our first sort of observation about Solomon and his life that that would be a safeguard for wisdom. First Kings chapter three, verses three to nine says Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, 
only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people. And the first observation I make from this little section uh, about Solomon and his life early on in his rule as king of Israel is that he had a resolute affection for and trust in the Lord. There was, with Solomon, clearly an affection or a love for the Lord. Uh, It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David. In other words, this was not just about Solomon's uh, intellectual capacity uh, to see a matter and to weigh it and to make a decision. This was about Solomon's, the core of Solomon's being and his devotion and his affection, his love for the Lord, and his consummate trust in the Lord. You could, you could talk about his humility in this section, but I just sort of encapsulated it in this concept of trust. In other words, Solomon both loved the Lord and he fully trusted the Lord's wisdom. He fully trusted the Lord to provide what he desperately needed. He didn't have a sense of self-accomplishment or or even though he had the place of kingship, he was on the throne um, and, and had at his disposal armies and servants and, and power and authority. He, he demonstrated a level of trust in the Lord. It just speaks of someone who, regardless of status or station in life, and if you think about this preser- preserving us on this path of wisdom, we might find ourselves at various points in time in our lives at various places of reputation, of accomplishment, of worldly success, or of challenge, of struggle, of even destitute conditions by the world standards, by a, a physical standard, and it doesn't really matter. The point is that if we maintain a resolute, a determined affection for the Lord, and a resolute and determined trust in the Lord, that is part of what safeguards us in this pathway of wisdom. And early on, Solomon had that. He, he manifested that. And obviously, the, the great, interesting, compelling part of Solomon's account is how this changed. So we know that this was something that was powerful and effective in his life and his walk with God early on because this is one of the areas that that, that changed. And so the, the course of his life changed as well. So he had a resolute affection for and trust in the Lord. Turn to chapter 6 of 1 Kings, and let's look at 11 through 13 and make another observation. But before we go there, let me ask you a question. Um, why, why would this be such an important attribute? Love and trust in the Lord. Why, why would I affection for the Lord? What is why would that why would that be such an important part of us maintaining a wise walk? What is it about those attributes that can serve as part of a safeguard? Anything, I rely on you for everything. Um, is that kind of what, what 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly part of it. I mean, he even uses that that self-identification in the passage about he's like a child. Um, and so, yeah, there's that element of childlike faith. And in reference or in relation to God, I mean, that's who we are, regardless of age. Yes? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so if we were to maintain a life of wisdom, then we need to fear the Lord, which includes love and devotion to Him. And this wisdom does not come from within us. It comes from the Word of God. And so if we love the Lord, we want to seek His Word and know His Word and then apply that to our thinking and to our actions. Yeah. And we, and we ultimately... Pursue. We we invest time in. We invest thought, energy, and we, we expend ourselves on the things that we love, right? And so, um, it stands to reason that you know we're we're cautioned throughout Scripture to not allow our love to grow cold, um, to stir up our affections for the Lord. And you think of David as uh, when he sinned the Bathsheba and Uriah. He came before the Lord and said, I've sinned against you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's that love relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when you think about um, this, this principle of love for the Lord, um, oftentimes our, when, when our, our affections are diverted, um, that's when we become most vulnerable to temptation um, we become most vulnerable to convincing ourselves, rationalizing decisions that we make that are um, unwise and unfruitful and ultimately potentially outright wicked and sinful. Like I said, I mean, I, I, I have family relationships where um, I've, you know, you, you've seen um, family members who really go from one walk to a whole different kind of walk, and it happens over some period of time. And from one perspective, you, you, you look at that and you ask yourself, how could that have happened? And of course, I go back to you know the thieves on the cross. It happens, could happen to anyone at any time, myself included. But it is stunning to, to go back and think about um, where, where the affections lie. What, 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 are, what are they loving right now? So again, stirring up our affections, even in Proverbs, we, we talk about, uh, it talks about how in that marriage relationship, we're called to stir up our love. We're, we're, we're supposed to be intentional about that, that affection that we, that we cultivate in the marriage relationship, which is a, a picture of this relationship with God. Yes, sir? You know, well, we love him because he first loved us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, go to First John. You know, it's all about loving. You know, God is love. You know, it, it presupposes a love for God. In, in you know, John does in, in First John. You know, his issue is is that person loving toward others. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, we love out of gratitude. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been adopted into His family. Right. I mean, what other response? What else can we do? Yeah. We can recognize that. That's right. Well, let's let's go to the next section. First uh, uh, Kings chapter six, verse eleven through thirteen says, "Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building." The Lord says, "If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel." And will not forsake my people Israel. And you drop down to verse 38. He was seven years in building it, in building the temple. So in the account of David's construction of the temple, what you see there, as you read that account, obviously I'm not going to read the entire account, the detailed account of the construction of the, of the temple. Solomon's Solomon. Did I say David? My, my mistake, sorry. Solomon's construction of the temple what you see there is a relentless priority on worship and obedience. Relentless. I mean, it's just ongoing, hard work to fulfill this, this objective of building a house 
of worship to the Lord. And he was at it for seven years. In chapter 8, turn to chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. So what you see in that that section where Solomon is relentlessly pursuing this construction of the temple, is you see this priority of worship and obedience. It's it's paramount. It's relentless. It's ongoing. And, And you see that in this account of Solomon's life. And when I think about our lives and how... Um, how we can be distracted from the priority of worship or from the simplicity of obedience to Christ. We oftentimes in our worship can, uh, can really attribute too much sentimentality or too much sort of feeling. We, we need to feel something. We need to get something. We need to be in some right frame of mind. And what you see in this account of Solomon's life is that worship and obedience go hand in hand, and there's devotion to it, there's, there's effort and exertion and work associated with it, but the, the priority of it cannot be overstated. That you and I, as we walk, if we're going to walk consistently on this path of wisdom before the face of God, we have to have a relentless priority of worship and obedience. And I, I go back to what I said at the beginning. Um, we, are, we, are, we're, we can't be passive about these things. We're constantly under assault. Our love, our affections, our interests, our energy is being tapped into from, from other demands of life. Um, we have many, many things that can, can keep us from maintaining an appropriate priority of worship and obedience in our lives. And Solomon gives us this example just in the account of his commitment to finishing this massive construction project over seven years and with relentless precision and, and, and massive uh, undertaking, that that was a priority uh, for him as the leader of God's people. And we must have a similar priority. Well, let's go to First Kings chapter 8, verses 22 to 27. And what we see in this section, I, I just called it a right side. I'm trying to use alliteration here to be, you know, clever and creative. So sometimes when you try to do that, it gets a little bit <laughs> goofy by admission. But I think it fits. Um, you see in this section a right-sized perspective of God and man. A right-sized perspective. And again, this, these things that I'm, I'm referencing, these observations that I'm making from this account of Solomon's life, you just start tracking these over against what dissipates, what diminishes in his pursuit of folly um, later in his life, you see a correlation there. Um, this right-sized perspective of God and man, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. First Kings chapter 8, verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. So you're, you're getting ready to dedicate the temple here. Um, and all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hand toward heaven. And he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, Keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And then listen to this in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Now what is often the temptation for man and how he views the things that he builds? 
but to see them as monuments to his genius, as edifices to his accomplishment. And yet, Solomon, and this is something that happens to Solomon later on in his life, but at this particular point, even though this massive undertaking was accomplished, this is, this is a monumental event in the life of his, in the history of the people of Israel. And this dedication of this temple, this unbelievable temple. And Solomon was the one who led that accomplishment. And yet, he did not see that as something to hold up as his own to take credit for. In fact, he put the temple itself in its proper perspective before God. That even though this is the house of God and a place for the Lord Himself to dwell in, let me just clarify that there is no place that can contain you. Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So there was a right-sized perspective of God and man. Everything that I have built, everything that, every charge that I have led here, Every accumulation of all the materials that went into this construction project, all the funding and all the labor, the beauty that it represents right now as the people look upon it, it does not compare and it is not able to contain you. So when I think about my own life and and potential pitfalls into folly and sin and wickedness, whether I want to admit it or not, I can have my view of God diminish before me. And I can begin to see my accomplishments and my, even, even in, the, in the realm of spiritual living, is it not a temptation for us to begin to think that we have somehow arrived at a place spiritually and it causes us to begin to look upon other people a, a little bit sort of down and, and with a little bit of air of condemnation or a little bit of, you know, I, I just I can't believe that this is happening to them. Or I can't believe that they've, you know, they've walked down this path or whatever. And the fact of the matter is, is that we have lost our perspective in that regard. We've lost our perspective on who God is and who we are in light of who He is. But early on in Solomon's life, at this dedication of the temple... That was clearly the case. This was a prime opportunity for Solomon to say, look what we built, or actually look what I built. Prime opportunity for that. Monumental accomplishment in the eyes of men, and yet he maintained perspective that this is not something that I can put God in. He's far above that. Well, on on forward in 1 Kings chapter 8, the very next verse, verse 28, He says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry, to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. We're going to look at a few more verses here, but before we go further, this to me represents Solomon's recognition of man's persistent need. Man's persistent need, and it is that of forgiveness by a holy God. So this magnificent edifice, this this unbelievable temple that had been constructed to be a dwelling place for the Lord was nothing more than a place for the people of God to come and make an appeal to God in repentance and there receive His forgiveness. There's this recognition that this house, as grand and splendorous as it is, it is a place for sinful people to come and appeal to a holy God for His grace and His forgiveness. You look further in verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor in following... Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Moving on toward repentance and cries for forgiveness. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Further appeals 
for God's forgiveness. Verse 37, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land and at their gates, ongoing appeal for God's forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. Verse 38 to 40, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. This is a man, by virtue of his, his dedication statements at the temple, recognizes that man's persistent need is forgiveness from a holy God. And over and over again, he gives these, these um, occurrences, these possible occurrences in which the appeal might be made, the context in which an appeal might be made, sinning against a neighbor, defeated by enemies, uh, appeals to God for rain, the, the rain's being held up because of sin, just over and over again, these appeals, recognizing that there is an affliction in the heart of man, he says, there in verse 38, each knowing the the affliction of his own heart. That you and I, at the moment we fail to realize that our greatest need is the forgiveness of God ongoing. Not ultimate forgiveness, obviously, for all those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. But that daily, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That constant recognition that you have an affliction of heart that needs God's cleansing power and cleansing work. It keeps us on this path of wisdom. We begin to feel like we have arrived spiritually. We begin to fail to recognize the depths of our own sinfulness. And then we begin to feel invincible. We begin to feel like that Whatever decisions we make are going to be the right kinds of decisions. Worse than that, when we fail to recognize that for sin there is judgment, for the believer there is certainly chastisement and discipline, and for the unbeliever there is wrath in light of sin, then we are on a path toward folly for sure. So Solomon represents here this recognition of man's persistent need, and it's that of forgiveness. And you continue on in the same Section, verses 41 to 43, Likewise, when a foreigner, I love this, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. This is Solomon's redemptive vision for God's people, that he has a recognition that God has a redemptive plan, and that this place of worship is not this this exclusive clubhouse for the chosen people of God to just come and form their huddle and pray and enjoy the favor of God, but this is a place where the foreigner, the one who is not of your chosen people, Israel, when he comes, may he receive what, you, what he asks for. May he be forgiven. May he be cleansed in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. This is Solomon dedicating the temple and recognizing that there is a redemptive vision for God's people, that God's people are to be bringing a message of reconciliation as part of the kingdom work, that we have a mission, and it's a mission, it's a redemptive mission, and that we recognize that. I mean, it's very difficult for us, I think, I mean, it'd be very difficult for us who are actively engaged faithfully in this mission of calling men to come to Christ and this redemptive plan of God to, to end up in places of extreme folly and and foolishness. It's certainly possible. But if we're committed to this kingdom work, this redemptive work, that people of all the earth may know your name and fear you, it is indeed a safeguard against folly, a practical safeguard against that. 
this redemptive vision for God's people. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54 to 61, you see this further. Now Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with the hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Again, this commitment to this redemptive plan, this Redemptive vision for God's people, that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God and there is no other. Solomon understood that. And then chapter 9. What you see in chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, I just call a repeated reflection upon redemptive history. A repeated reflection upon redemptive history. The fact of the matter is, is that we are forgetful, that there's a lot of competition for our thoughts, there's a lot of competition for our preoccupations. There's a lot of competition of information to shape our thinking. And if we're going to be people who walk in wisdom before the face of God, we have to have repeated reflection upon redemptive history. Another way to look at it is you recount the works of God. The Psalms are replete with recounting the goodness and kindness and works and glories of the Lord. And we do that over and over and over again because it helps us to walk in wisdom. It safeguards us against forgetting the ground on which we stand. First Kings 9, 1-9 says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship him. Then I will cut off from Israel from the, cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Imagine that. Imagine that. This puts things in perspective here. This house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. He keeps referring to what has happened before. And in fact... This is just basically God repeating to Solomon something that he had already said to him before, the previous place. And he's recounting what he, what he had promised and committed and commended to David before him and to our forefathers. In other words, there's this continuous reflection upon what God has done, who God is, how God works among his people, what he calls his people to. What brings ruin upon his people? It's keeping all of that, that history, those facts, those events at the forefront of our minds as a teacher for us, as a teacher and a guide. In fact, that's what we do when we start to walk in folly and foolishness is we forget. We stop recounting the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, the works of the Lord, 
the judgment of the Lord, what he has done in the past. In this particular section, it is astonishing to me to hear the word of the Lord coming to Solomon and putting completely in perspective what his call is. That this house that you have built, with all of this labor, with all of this ornate material, gold and jewels and timber from Lebanon, all the things that went into the construction of this amazing edifice, he says this will come to utter ruin. That means nothing to me in light of your faithfulness. So reflect upon, remember, call out, teach, admonish your own heart with what I have done, who I am, what I have done amongst my people. We must be those who repeatedly reflect upon redemptive history. That's why studying Scripture and studying it in context and understanding the works of the Lord in the past is so important for us. There's nothing more. I mean, think about, just go back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. That was, that was an assault on Adam and Eve's memory of what God had said and what God had done. Recent memory. That's all that was. And temptation and sin came after. Well, continuing on. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. This is really so important for us. Um, A righteous stewardship of God's gifts. That walking in wisdom requires us to be righteous stewards of the gifts that God has given us. We are stewards. Now when the Queen of Sheba, this is just the account of of the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon. There's a couple of different passages I'm going to read about Solomon and his gifts here. And when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials and the attendants of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the, Lord, of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. This was an overwhelming experience for a queen. A wealthy and powerful queen comes before Solomon, is exposed to the splendor of his house and his palace, the glory of the worship at his temple, and the wisdom that God had given him on display as he answered her questions, And she's left breathless. She's stunned at the amazing gifts that she observed. Chapter 10, verses 6 to 9, 1 Kings. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of all Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then in verse 23 to 24, 1 Kings, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. He was a steward. He was just a steward. And I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of other people in my family. When we fail to recognize that whatever gifts we've been given are not our own, but they are ours to steward for the glory of God, we are on the precipice of folly and potential destruction and disaster. I've seen it over and over and over and over again. This complete loss of perspective of stewardship of what God has given, what God has given. And then in comes pride, the pride of man. And then we see what happens with Solomon. You go from this description in 1 Kings chapter 10 to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many 
foreign women. And down it goes. Down it goes. This man, who early on in his life and in his rule, demonstrated an affection for the Lord, a trust in the Lord, placed a, a supreme priority on worship and obedience, had a right perspective of God and man, did not have those things out of proportion. He recognized and understood that man's greatest need was forgiveness from a holy God. He understood that there was a redemptive purpose for what God was doing amongst his people, and that was so that all the world would know, all the peoples of the earth would know your name. God was in the business of redeeming people. And those who he's called are a part of that mission. And he, he was called to repeatedly reflect upon the goodness and work of God throughout time and history, to never forget these things. And ultimately to recognize that the gifts that he had been given, and they were profound, they were nonetheless gifts that he was called to steward, not claim ownership over. In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 16, in his own words, Solomon says this, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. You can hear the pride and the self-adulation even in the description of his own wisdom there. A distinct change of perspective on the gifts that he was given. When you look into First John, it was just referenced earlier, you look at this familiar passage of First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. This is a picture of of what happens to us, what happens to men and women who, um, who may have walked in wisdom at some point, may have demonstrated some semblance of love for God or adherence to His truth or a, a walk of wisdom of some, of some sort, but they fall in love with the things of this life and the things of the world. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a portrait of what happened with Solomon. Solomon fell in love. Remember, he starts off with an affection for the Lord and a trust in the Lord. And then his affections change. And he no longer is a steward of the gifts of God, but he's feeling a sense of personal credit for the gifts that he has. And when you read that account in 1 Kings chapter 11, of all of the things that he pursued in terms of the worship of false gods, it's, it's a staggering Contrast. It's, it, you can't even put it into words, really, how much of a fall that is from the worship of the true God. The one who spearheaded the building of the temple and understood that this God, who would, this would be a dwelling place for, really could not be captured or dwell in this place because he was far above it, far above the highest heaven, moves from that place to building places of worship for foreign, deity, foreign deities and pursuing his passions and his, his worldly, earthly, sensual passions and pleasures in this life. And you read Ecclesiastes and you see his own recounting of, of all those pursuits. And because he fell in love with the world, the things of this world. I would just argue that when we become settled, when we forget that we're in a battle, that there's a war of ideas, a war of thinking, really a war against our own soul that's constantly underway, and we become lax in these areas, we are on the precipice of falling into folly. Falling into folly. And consequences can be devastating for us, for our families, um, for our witness and our testimony and our ministries amongst other people. So God, help us to walk faithfully in wisdom, right? Help us to walk faithfully in wisdom, remembering these things. Do you have any final thoughts? Final statements? Thinking about the uh, 
temple. I'm reminded of uh, Stephen uh, before he was stoned. The, the Jews that rejected Christ, you know, he was giving them a sermon, and as he went on, he, he talked about the whole history of Israel, and they were just loving what he said until, until he got to this part where he said, Our fathers had the tent of wit, witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke. He who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? You know, as soon as he started to say, the temple is not that important, they immediately, you know, turned to, to rage. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he says, you know, you stiff-necked people, uh, uncircumcised in heart, and your ears always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You know, there, there's this concept that, you know, they, they, they worshipped this temple. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, to them it was a place that contained God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the pride of that, mm -hmm. uh, just, it, it's the root of, of unbelief. Yeah. Yeah. Becoming really sort of thinking you're masters of your own destiny. You can contain God in some way. You've fashioned him into a place that you can... It, it's, it's really interesting to kind of extrapolate that and think about how um, that applies to us in, in ways that we might not even be susceptible to all the time. Where we start to think about God and his work in ways that are diminishing in nature. We become sort of satisfied and content where we are and in our understanding of God and his work and his mission for us, um, the subtleties of, of pride and self-deception are, um, are profound in our lives. And we have to be constantly before the face of God, constantly in his word, constantly amongst his people, being accountable to others, um, walking faithfully and humbly and recognizing that we are, we are to be stewards of the gifts that God's given us for the purpose of calling men to Christ and serving in the body and building one another up so that they can be effective in calling others to Christ in the ministry that God's given them. So God help us to just walk in wisdom day by day and trusting in his word and, and walking humbly before him. Let's pray.